You sound great, by the way. Thanks. You too. <laughs> uh, so it is January 17th at 2.15 p.m. Eastern. Ruth and Nick recording lesson 3.5 on the environment. Three, two, one. Woo! Welcome back, nerds! <laughs> <laughs> that was the best intro yet. <laughs> I know. we got to start with the celebration. Um, because they've already seen the behavior design lesson and there's like celebration blitzes in there. Amazing. Pre-celebration. Um, Pre-celebration, yep. So it's welcome everybody back to 3.5. The lesson today is environment. We're so excited to be here with you. We thank you. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking responsibility for your health. We are going to unpack the impact of our environment today on our health. And if you have questions, or you want to contribute a layer two conversation or submit any resources, you can message us on Slack. Otherwise, or no, now let's let's dig in starting now, Nikki Pop. Let's dig in. Let's do it. So let's set some context and talk about sort of the, the fundamental health implication when it comes to the environment, which is that <clears throat> the situation we find ourselves in today is that our biology really hasn't changed over the past thousand years but our environment has changed drastically um over the past you know 10 years even over the past two years i would say but over the past let's say 100 years our environment has gotten drastically different in terms of you know food how we work um you know how we do or don't live within community how technology is affecting us so the environment has drastically changed our biology hasn't and so we're starting to have sort of this mismatch of our biology in this alien environment, and that can create obstacles to health. And so our objective today is to unpack how the environment shapes our behaviors and in turn shapes our health um, and how we can become empowered to become the architects of, of our environment so that such that the environment promotes health. And oftentimes that comes by understanding how the environment affects us and different ways, exploring and experimenting with different ways we can design our environment intentionally and deliberately uh, in order to facilitate better health outcomes while using less energy, right? You make a one-time decision about your environment and it can nudge a series of good behaviors. And so we're hoping to unpack that today. Maybe a good place to start is let's define environment. Um, how do you define environment, Ruth? I define environment as any of the surroundings um, that an animal or a plant finds itself in at any given moment that we have. And then, and that we have like, there's different kinds of environments, right? So there's like actually our in biological internal environment. There's our environment surrounding us. There's social, social environment how we think and feel inside our brains as an environment, any, any surrounding that, that, we, that any biological organism has around it. Right. From the most microscopic to the most macroscopic. And I think it's important to note this notion that we do not exist independently from our environment. We are bi-directionally both affected by and affect our environment. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good definition. You know, the surroundings that an organism finds itself within uh, or the circumstances or objects that surround something as it, as it lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the environment's kind of like an onion, right? There's many different layers and there's also different dimensions. You know, you mentioned a few of them, like the internal environment, the physical environment, the social, the mental. So we're going to go through 
those uh, at kind of a broad level and give, you know, unpack them a little bit so that mm-hmm. um, all the nerds listening to this have a little bit of food for thought about how they can maybe think differently about the environment, right? We don't want to tell people what to do with their environment or, you know, we just want to share our perspective on the different nuances that you can go into when it comes to the environment, which empowers you to take more responsibility to creating a healthy environment. Um, Nikki Pup, before before we go on, can we just go back and just crudely review uh, like the, the bio, when you said um, our biology hasn't changed, I just want to just do a quick, quick review of like the motivational triad that organisms are designed to essentially um, seek pleasure, avoid pain, conserve energy. And that, and that, and that there is this um, feedback system in our bodies that is designed in order to like pursue pleasure for get food, essentially get food, survive and reproduce. So I just want to like set the stage for how we go about our talk in the environment because we ha- our biology has not changed in so long, but our environment, our modern world has changed so drastically and we're not equipped because of those like modern magic buttons that we'll talk about later. And that we're not trying to tell anybody like what to do, but the understanding of just in the most crude way that all we're really designed to do is to find food, survive long enough to have sex and reproduce our genes. Yep. And that motivational triad served us very well in our um, prehistoric environment, right? In the environment we've humans have lived in for the majority of time, that motivational triad is what got us to survive and, and thrive actually. And it's not until we come to this very alien environment that that now that motivational triad might actually be, um, doing us a disservice right? Because our ability to um, seek pleasure is unlimited. And the things that give us pleasure can actually be empty pleasures where, you know, like sex used to be the the reason sex is so pleasurable is because that's the nudge that we that's the reward we get for doing a behavior that propagates our species or our genetics. Um, But that same pleasure maybe can be received by watching porn. And so that's what I mean by empty pleasure, where it's like the reward, we've hacked that pleasure domain so hardcore that we've actually eliminated all the substance and simply allowed ourselves to have hyper levels of pleasure without actually the, the reward that that pleasure initially was designed to facilitate. So we're not, we're not actually designed to have like prolonged bouts of those, of that pleasure. That's why I was calling them like like porn would be like the magic button, right? Like they do those studies about like where the Raven when, when um, offered cocaine or uh, a mate will always go for the more, the most efficient, like the most pleasure producing the least amount of energy to get the pleasure and the one that avoids the most pain. So those addictive type qualities, it's, I guess one of the important things to say here is that personally, I felt some guilt and shame sometimes because I can't will myself to go for the apple when I'm faced with a chocolate cake kind of thing, you know, but we're actually wired to go for that thing because of the motivational triad. And I never, until I understood that about the motivational triad, I never, I always kind of like thought I wasn't strong enough, or there was maybe something a little wrong with me, or maybe I would like had addiction patterns from like my ancestors or whatever. The truth is, is that we really are just kind of wired to do that. 
And so, and we're not, we're not with like moods of happiness and unhappiness. I love this. I, it's so simple. Like when you think of it, because like you have, you have, you know, you're, you know, you're going for the most amount of pleasure because that's how your nervous system is wired. You know, you want to avoid pain. I know I always want to avoid pain and conserve energy. So it's like, well, but we're not designed to have the modern, to have those, um, those pleasure seeking magic buttons, like be touched all the time. That's where that neuroadaptation comes in where you constantly are tolerant and then you need more and more of the thing. Right. right. And so like, I don't know. So it's like, it's essentially like all treasure, no hunt, you know? Yes. And if you're, I mean, all treasure, no hunt means that if the treasure is food, you turn out to be an obese person who can no longer move. And that's not possible. Uh, a thousand years ago, it is possible today. It doesn't mean it's good for our health. And so it's almost like, okay, that analogy you gave of, okay, when presented with an apple in a chocolate cake, we know that we are are wired to choose the, the chocolate cake. Maybe like one time out of 10, we can have a, a, enough motivation or willpower because it's well-timed in the day and we haven't made that many decisions to choose the apple. But inevitably, we will eventually choose the cake way more than we're going to choose the apple. And so I think this anchors back to this topic today where, well, if we know that and we can see it objectively with no shame involved, then the solution is don't make the cake available, only have apples available because there's no choice in that case, mm -hmm. right? There's no, there's no ability to choose the instant pleasure uh, if we know that that done frequently enough will result in health consequences, right? right? And so really what environment boils down to is understanding how our environment and our surroundings affect our behavior, understanding what behaviors we want to do that align with our health, and then creating an environment that literally nudges those healthy behaviors and um, makes it very difficult do, to do the unhealthy behaviors, right? Put more friction with unhealthy, quote unquote, unhealthy behaviors, or, or I wouldn't say unhealthy or healthy. I would just say the behaviors that don't align with optimal health create friction for us being able to do those. And the behaviors that do align with optimal health reduce friction um, to, to doing those behaviors. And so naturally we don't without, that means without even thinking, if you've engineered your environment, you're automatically going to be ushered towards more behaviors that align with health. And so let's, let's dive into that now because, um, and I think one of the big parts is this notion of agency where we have choice, right? This whole idea that if we can accept that we have varying levels um, of agency and control with creating, crafting our environment around us, then that allows us to accept responsibility that if we're the creators of the environment and our environments nudge behaviors, then we have agency in choosing what behaviors we do or don't do. And obviously it's different for different people and at different levels, but for the most part, um, accepting responsibility for your health means accepting agency that you are the um, creator of your lifestyle. You are the create, and your lifestyle is the accumulation of all the behaviors you do um, in your life. So let's talk about different types of environment because I think to me, there's kind of three broad categories physical, social, and mental that come to mind. And each of them has kind of subcomponents. So, physical environment examples of that would be clothing. And I never used to think of clothing as my environment, but really, it's like, you know, if we take footwear. Um, as clothing that we put on top of our feet, that is the most immediate environment that our feet find themselves within. And so if the environment doesn't allow our feet to articulate naturally or to support themselves with the muscles of the foot, 
um, then the environment is going to compromise the ability of our feet to function naturally. And so physical environment, you have clothing, uh, food would be part of the physical environment, which we covered um, in a previous lesson, your home, your workplace, um, temperature outside would be part of the physical environment. Like today, we got a foot of snow in Ottawa. Um, and I was outside shoveling. And so the environment imposed some sort of challenge that I had to meet physically by going outside and moving and shoveling snow, right? So the environment nudged me to do that because if, if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to walk out my, my house. Um, and another one that's in the physical environment would be transportation, right? Do you have access to a car or do you have access to only a bike? That's going to change what movement behaviors you do um, during the day, each day. Mm -hmm. So uh, and then the home environment, we're going to cover a lot deeper in the ground living lesson, because I think that really is all about how do you design a home environment that's conducive to movement and creates friction to spending huge amounts of time sedentary in a sitting position. And so we'll cover that in a later lesson. But um, any thoughts on physical environment? I was one thing that I was struck by was like when you said that you had a, a foot of snow in Ottawa when I found that out. By contrast, I live in a warmer climate, but it's in the, you know, low 30s, you Fahrenheit. know, Fahrenheit, and it's cold for me, but, but like, I have to, in my brain, because I'm aware, and I want to like impose a certain uh, challenge, I go outside really early in the morning to get like a little taste of just cold exposure even because my body is more adapted to a, a warmer environmental climate, you know, mm -hmm. so I'll go out. And so, you know, you probably could stay, I could have stayed hunkered down in a, a very warm apartment, but I was like, Oh, Nick's shoveling snow. I'm going to go out there and like, try to get a little bit uncomfortable. So just about like, I just want to introduce the idea of, of challenges that we impose on ourselves. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And, you know, in the physical environment, even just wearing clothing that allows you to move freely through the full spectrum of mobility, like mm -hmm. choosing that clothing is a way that you've essentially purposely chosen your immediate physical environment, the layers mm -hmm. of, of materials that are covering you to permit a wider range of movement, right? Mm -hmm. Like I remember now I'm just basically when people invite me to a wedding, I say, unless I'm okay to come in like Lululemons and a t-shirt, um, I don't know if I can attend. Yeah. And, you know, I just remember going to so many weddings or formal events and wearing this suit that I felt, I literally felt <laughs> like I was like, someone was strangling me and just tied my arms. I was like, I can't move. Oh I can't squat. Um, when I listened yeah. to you and Mike talk about the, the suit and Mike was describing how he felt like he, it didn't matter how well fitting the suit was, like, unless it was like custom tailored with a lot of room, like he, he felt like his arms came forward and he could he did the squat test if he couldn't like drop his butt to the floor and stuff it wouldn't um he would like test out the suit but the thing was is that when i see men it must be the same thing for women too when when men see women maybe but like when you see people who are not in clothes where they can move their joints when i see men in suits i always think they look nice but i i always i didn't think it was because of the comfort you know, or the, the actual, I thought it was just because they were, men were in suits and they were like, oh, I'm in a suit. I need to act right. <laughs> yeah. But I, until I heard Mike talking about the discomfort of the joints of the arm or the hips and you talking about that on the podcast, it never even occurred to me that it was physically uncomfortable, you know, and then, then I started noticing very regularly 
that 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 it didn't matter. It doesn't matter how well the suits are made. They're designed for people to not move. Same thing with women in dresses and high heels and stuff is that you just are designed to stay very still still and not at move like a natural human would move in a in a environment where you could move, you know? Right. Yeah. It's just very restrictive. So if you wear restrictive clothing, you're going to have restricted range of motion that you can express and you will eventually have restricted mobility. This is just yep. said principle 101. Um, and yeah, so that's the physical environment. And so I think really assessing like, are there any elements of your physical environment that you can think of um, that might be nudging you towards behaviors that might not align with optimal health? Right. And that can literally be wearing clothing that's restrictive, including footwear. It can be having a huge availability of very easily seen food that may be more food like products that are delicious and tempting, but actually provide no nutrients. Um, you know, so I, I think we can all sort of analyze our physical environment um, and go through that list and see what applies to us. What what are we noticing right now? Have we ever even thought of this? Right. Like I never until Mike and I did a podcast about the environment, I never thought about the environment as deeply as this and saw all these different areas of the physical environment being like, wow, this is, you know, environment's taking on a whole new meaning for me. Mm -hmm. um, next one up, social environment. And this is really has to do with the people you surround yourself with. And I think there's that old saying, like we become a combination of the five people we spend the most time around. And I really think that's true. Um, you know, our family, you, you can't really choose your family, but you can choose your friends and, um, you know, people might not feel as much agency, but at the end of the day, you can choose your coworkers. And, you know, in the past I've worked with people, um, you know, before TFC that I, I, I wasn't, I didn't like being around and being forcing, being forced to be around people. You don't really like being around all every weekday, like wears on you big time. It wears on your um, your mental energy and just so many things. So I think with the, in terms of the show, social environment, you know, who are we choosing to be around? And, and when someone asks you to do something, whether you say yes or no is a choice that you're making of whether or not you put yourself around those people. Um, and you know, sometimes you got to split ways with negative people. Sometimes you got to split ways with people that aren't providing, um, aren't aligning with the kind of person you want to become. And so, yeah, the social environment, uh, I think is another, like one of the main three big, um, sort of buckets of the environment. Um, and what are your thoughts on the social environment, Ruth? I like James, James Clear has a, a quote that I really like. He says something like, um, you don't have to ditch your old friends, but don't underestimate the power of making new ones. Hmm. And I really like that because, um, so I have. I have this kind of personality where I, I, I love being around all people and um, all different kinds of people, right? So like I have a, I have a, a group of, of people that I would go out to dinner with that would, never, that would never move. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I think are probably very unhealthy people. Um, we had a, a, a dinner club because I wanted to be with them where we would go out on Thursday nights and we'd go to all these restaurants and stuff, but I always ate and drank too, too much when I was with them. And in order to try to like shift the in social environment to like, let's go for a walk instead was, it was just not possible, you know? Um, so, you know, how you were saying like, I don't like being around like negative people and stuff, but sometimes it takes a really long time to part ways. And it's, and, it, and it's been that way for me. You know, um, 
I've had to, I've had like a lot of really good friends who I share values with about movement and health and everything, but they're not like maybe close by or they're on the internet. Um, and so the people in my immediate surroundings are the people that I'm, I, that I'm like, are, I'm friends with. So it's been a really long, I mean, like now we're moving to a whole new city because we keep re-examining our environment and our physical environment, our social environment, you know, like Nikki Pop, our physical environment is not no longer really conducive to, you know, recruiting people to go play outside and do stuff with. And um, there's too much, there's too much food and drink here. And that's all people want to do. You can't overcome the inertia of that in my experience. I mean, I probably could, but it takes too much energy, which I want to conserve. So I like that, but I still love these people, you know, right. like I love being with them occasionally on feasting, on feasting occasions where it's novel and it's not a part of my regular life. Right. And I, I, I think, and myself included, sometimes there's a tendency of seeing things uh, in a very binary way. It's like either I'm around those people all the time or I'm never around them. When in reality, it might be like, maybe I should be around those people 50% less. That might be better for my health. That might be better for my mental and physical health. Um, and, you know, I, I would hang around some people sometimes and certain people in the groups were like literally highlight reels of bad news that they found on social media and they, they, and, and you could tell that they loved to share this stuff because they always got a reaction and that was like their thing, right? They're the person who knows the craziest shit that they saw on social media. Um, but it's just not, you know, I started to really tune into that. And I'm like, Oh, I don't want to be around that because that immediately hijacks my brain to go into like all to view the world more negatively, to be quite frank. Right. If someone's saying 10 negative things, I'm like, Oh my God, this world is crazy. It's so bad. Uh, and then you go around people who are just like happy and love to be in nature and value being quiet, like with each other, not having to talk all the time. I'm like, that's way more in line with the kind of vibes I want to, I want to, you know, be in. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think until you view the social environment as something that you can change and as something that affects you in a profound way, you don't really have a, an opportunity to really evaluate, like, am I making the right choices in the people I surround myself with? Um, but once you do, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you start to get a taste for the fact that you have choice and your choices make a huge difference in terms of your well-being, uh, it then becomes something to think of instead of just something that is. Um, and I think that's really the point of, of this lesson is just to bring up, um, you know, objectively, these are different parts that we see as the environment and everyone has, has to make a decision of how they want to change it or how they, or just examine it, right? Before you even change anything, it's like observe and examine that area of your environment so that you can detect whether there's things that maybe you want to change in future or that you can tune into. Um, and, and that's the point, right? It has to start with awareness and then change can come from awareness. But if you're not aware of all the different, of the deep, deep multi-layered meaning of environment, maybe there's not as many choices um, that you can make because you just don't know there's those choices exist. Uh, yeah. You, it seems like, it, it seems like you have to rem keep remembering about the magic buttons, right? Like the negativity bias and that addiction yep. to like negative thinking, the food in my case, like I, there was a part of me that would be addicted to just like eating and drinking and speaking and gossiping with the ladies too. And then you have to remember that we're, we're wired kind of for that. And that, you know, when you were talking about optimal health, I, I feel like we have to keep coming back to the idea of like happiness, you know, like we're not just talking, I mean, optimal health leads to moods of happiness on a more regular basis. And that's what, that's kind of what we're after, right? So the motivational triad 
um, about like the original pleasures of what it means to eat a piece of fruit or be with people who are want to dance instead of sit and eat and drink for hours on end and talk about negative things brings up moods of happiness that show you that you're on the right track for like the original pleasures that we're designed for right like the like staying true to the biology that we're talking about because you know I can I can kind of hear some of my friends and colleagues saying like well optimal health like that what you guys are proposing doesn't really sound all that fun you know but it's like I mean I've heard that I've heard that a lot you know like well that seems your life seems kind of boring and also not very fun but I can tell you personally that I'm having way more fun than I've ever had in my life and I feel inside my cells like so much better than I ever have before like even since I was 20 you know and yeah. so um, I think the quality of life is what we're after. So it's not, you know, it's not just always like optimal health for optimal health. It's like optimal health because happiness, because it feels really good, you know? Yeah. And I think even, you know, health is very subjective. We already talked about that in one of the mm. first lessons. Fun is also very subjective. Yeah. And, and the nuance of fun is what time horizon, right? Because I can crush, crush like five beers and eat a chocolate cake. It's pretty fun for like... <laughs> half an hour, then it's not so fun for like five hours. <laughs> so it's like, what's the net fun? Um, and you know, I like, I consider fun going for a walk in the forest and, and like observing birds. Like most people would be like, that's boring as shit, bro. I don't want to do that. So those are the people I go around in my social environment and it's sorted out, you know, like I respect everyone's different perspective on fun. You know, I went through different, I think everyone goes through the rites of passage where like staying yeah. up all night drinking and doing drugs is fun. But at a certain point, it becomes less fun. Um, yeah. And, you know, we all go through those rites of passage, passages at different phases. Some some people don't leave that phase and that's totally on them. But uh, I think in the end, it's like we kind of got to know what we want in order to be able to engineer an environment that gets us there. Right. And I think even that's why we started with what is health. If you define what health is and you really be very concrete and specific about what is your objective, if you want to be let's quote unquote healthy, what does healthy mean to you? And what are concrete ways that you can work towards living a more healthful life? Once you know that, then you can start to make changes. But it's like, once again, you got to be aware before you can actually change things. Um, the last sort of bucket for environment is the mental environment. And I think the mental environment is heavily influenced by the physical and social environment. Um, but I, I think the big the big one with the mental environment I, I, that makes it especially relevant today is the fact that technology has drastically changed our environment and seems to be the one that we're most vulnerable to in terms of being hacked um, and also the one we interact with most frequently. And so, you know, the mental environment includes the media that we choose to be exposed to. Um, and along with that, you know, the, the mental environment in our brain of like, what is the environment in there? Mostly negative thoughts, mostly positive thoughts, mostly anxiety and fear, mostly joy and happiness. Like what is, what is our mental environment? And, and that's kind of almost like the mental environment is almost like the state of our mental health, right? Because that's they're They kind of like determine one another. Um, but I think the mental environment is something that we sort of just go along with and accept what's there. Um, when in reality, there's so many things we can do to take agency over our mental environment, like even just taking time to ourselves and really thinking of, well, why do I always think, why am I worried about this? Why am I always worried about these things? Like, is, are they worth worrying about? Um, can I do anything about them? If I can't, then maybe I shouldn't worry about it. 
um, you know, most of the things I've worried about in most of my life have never come true. And so I've just kind of realized like, well, it's probably just better not to worry about things that, that haven't even come true and are unlikely to come true. And so I think our mental environment, we have a lot of, there's a lot of things that affect our mental environment, but I think if we adopt uh, a bigger sense of agency for the thoughts that go through our minds and also the things that influence our thoughts, the people around us, um, but also the media we, we, we choose to consume, knowing full well that the motivational triad is, at, is huge at play when it comes to things like social media, which essentially know exactly how to hack us and get us stuck on there for better or worse, usually worse, because when something gets presented to us that makes us really upset, we want to look at it more. And if all these companies are doing is optimizing for keeping us stuck to our phones, then that's inevitably kind of what happens. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on the mental environment? Well, we're going to, we're probably going to really dig into some layer two conversations about this. And also there's like a whole lesson on mental health, I think, but um, yes. I do want to say that I, I found it interesting. There's some, there's some evidence to show that when you are paying attention to your thoughts, well, first of all, each thought that we think, which we do have control over, and if we accept that we have control over our thoughts, a thought will create a cascade of like hormones, right? So like a thought essentially leads to a feeling. So that's why, you know, I mean, I think it's a little bit crude to talk about positive and negative thinking per se, but it, it is valuable to, to be aware that each thought we think has, um, you know, a physical neurochemical uh, response like in our bodies. Yeah. yeah. So, so like a thought leads to a feeling leads to a mood leads to a state of mind leads to a personality trait essentially over time. Right. And then the other thing about the, our mental health is that, um, oh, there's just so much in there, but, but anyway, I just wanted to kind of just touch on the idea that like our, we, we have control of our thoughts and that they lead to feelings. Oh, I know what it was. It was that there was a, if you are to like practice a certain type of thinking, like if you say like, oh, if you were to go on like a, a love, like a appreciation rampage. So you would say like, I love my, you just say out loud, like actually saying out loud the I love thing. And then like stay, saying your gratitude stuff. Like, oh, I love my pillow. I love my blanket. I love this soft fur on my neck. I love my coffee. I love this clean water. I love my... I love being able to talk with my friends. I love my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I love a hot shower. I love wiggling my toes. I love being able to get into a deep squat. I love being able to, you know, jump rope. I love playing tennis. I love, I love. And then if you sustain that for like 17 seconds, like it can, that, that neuro pathway will start to like lay down tracks over time, like neurons that fire together, wire together. Um, and so I just think that's so interesting. And, and I've tried that before. It's kind of, I think it's a little bit like the celebration blitzes and all those like, you know, like ramping up, like understanding that we can hack our own nervous systems and yeah. those magic buttons, right? So you were talking about media, like even when the pleasure trap was written in 2003, I think they, they didn't even like discuss technology as much as like food, right? Because food was, is the addictive, the most addictive thing back then. We hadn't even really gotten to the point with screens in 2003 that we are now. Mm. So, but those are like those little magic buttons that like override our, 
our natural pleasure circuitry into this like hyper stimulus. But anyway, so that we'll, we'll dig into that more, but the whole idea about how much agency we actually have when it comes to like the way that we think and the way that we feel. And it's not so, it's not so rote. Like people are like, you can't just say, think positive, man, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, like there's more to it, but it, yeah. it actually does work. It's just a matter of like the, the strategies we use, right? Yeah. One of my favorite sayings is if you think it works or you think it doesn't, either way, you're right. Yeah. Because you've yeah. already decided. <clears throat> and I think, um, yeah, I, th I think we have, and you know, we have to start by just once again, observing like what kind of thoughts are going through my mind um, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And that requires us to just like be able to sit free of distraction because the first thing you're going to want to do when you start to kind of sit and try and tune into those thoughts is distract yourself because it's really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and I think just being honest with ourselves of like, okay, the things I think of most frequently, are they things that are concerning me? Because we have a negativity bias, right? If something's potentially bad or could happen, that's bad. That's going to be much more salient. Our brain's going to tune into that first before the good things, you know, are they mostly things that I'm concerned about and worried about, or are they things that I'm hopeful and optimistic for or happy about? And just sort of getting a pulse on like, where am I right now? What is the majority of stuff going through my brain? Like, is it, is it things that concern me or is it things that make me happy or are not concerning me? And I think once you get a, a calibration on that, you can start to make um, you can start to decide how to change those patterns, right? By doing those exercises like you just did. And to a lot of people, people are going to be like, that feels silly. But maybe it feels silly the first time because it's the first time you've done it. But, you know, as you were saying all those things, the smile you had on your face was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like mm -hmm. you could tell there was an embodiment of joy coming, uh, whether you realized it or not, when you were saying all those things. And so I think these are, you know, these are fun, goofy experiments we can do on our own. They start out feeling goofy, but they end up actually being very profound because maybe yeah. you don't say it out loud, but maybe, you know, if everyone just says a couple things they're super thankful for every day in their brains or out loud, like that has a, that has a big impact to wire positive neural, neural cycles in your brain. And it, it mm -hmm. it's basically like rebalancing and cleaning up your mental environment. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the three kind of broad categories of environment, physical, social, mental. Um, Next, let's talk about how our environment nudges our behavior, because I think this is the this is the really mm. big part, right? We're constantly influenced by our environment, um, whether we realize it or not. It's often an unconscious driver of our behavior where like we're not expressly tuning into, oh, I just saw that. Now I feel, you know, I just smelled the donut. So I'm now I want a donut. Um, Ooh, it just kind of happens, so right? It happens. Yeah. You're and, just and, saying you just saying that makes me want a donut. Nikki what kind of donut did you think of, Ruth? Oh, I would definitely get a cinnamon sugar uh, cake donut. Ooh, sounds like a good one. <laughs> um, so the unconscious driver of our choices that we make are often, often boiled down to the environment, whether we're tuned into it or not. And so if the environment is the chief determinant of our behaviors, then perhaps the path of least resistance and most efficiency is not to focus on the behaviors we wish to change, we have to be aware of what behaviors we might want to change. But if we know we want to change a certain behavior, maybe it's best to look at the environment that behavior happens within and work on changing the environment. And, you know, like trying to change the, the behavior without changing the environment that the behavior occurs within is like swimming upstream. It could be very difficult, very frustrating. And I think that's where a lot of people, 
you know, they're like, oh, I want to change what I eat, but they don't change what they buy at the grocery store or what what is available to them at home. And so how would the behaviors change if the environment has stayed the same, right? It's very, can be very frustrating. And I think people yeah. beat them up a lot over not succeeding at their objectives, not because they didn't have the, they blame themselves for not having enough motivation or willpower when in reality, they might not have actually just taken the right approach to it. Um, and I, I know for me, you know, when I start to feel stagnant in my routines and my behaviors, my habits find myself going slumping into like behaviors that I know don't align with health, but I find myself sort of powerless to stop doing. Um, I radically change my environment and it immediately creates a fresh space where it's almost like I, sh by changing the environment, I shed away all the old routines that are built into the previous environment. And it kind of like wipes the slate clean and it gives me more intentionality because I can't just be on autopilot. Um, mm -hmm. I actually have to like, take account into my new surroundings and know that, oh yeah, it's because I, I changed this because I wanted to change those behaviors. It's like an extra little layer of an extra second of thinking that makes me, that gives me a prompt to say, oh yeah, I didn't, I wanted to stop doing that. That's why I changed that. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts that's, on that? That's, that is such a, I do the exact same thing, by the way. Also, we don't, we don't have a car. So like there are certain things like we don't, we don't have any of the foods that we would normally like, we, we would crush the chocolate cake if it was there every day. But, right. but Sundays are my day where like, I'll take myself to the coffee shop and I have a delicious cranberry nut muffin. That's like really made with really white flour that I would not normally eat on a regular basis. Sure. But there's the coffee shop is across the street and I go there and I enjoy it, but the friction. So if we don't have that food in the kitchen, and then we have to actually ride the bike and it's, you know, it's very cold outside. There's enough friction where I'm like, ah, I could just make myself a jelly, peanut butter jelly cracker or something. And that'll suffice in place of the cake. But you're, when you were talking about the um, change, radically changing your environment, like I always, I do my laundry, like whenever I'm in a, in a rote uh, routine of like something I get up and I'm like, just go do a load of laundry. And then I fold it. And I'm like, oh, this is such a beautiful pile of laundry. I shouldn't like you know, it just gives me a little, in yoga, it's called saucha. It's like the cleaning and reorganizing. And then um, you, it seems like when we do that in our environments, reorganize, it reminds me of like, if let's say you go on to, uh, to a retreat or something and, or you go on vacation and you're like on the beach and you live in your, on the, and, and you go in the water every day and you eat fresh fish and fresh fruit. And then you come home and on the way home, you're like, I want to live like that every day. And then you get back home you have all these aha moments and things you want to change while you're on vacation or retreat or where, wherever you are in this new environment, you come home. And as soon as you get home, you're around the same people, the environment's the same, everything in the cupboard is the same. Like you do all your, you go back to your old environment, social, physical, mental, and then all of your aha fresh mo uh, moments that you had while you were away are for not because the environment's the same. And it's kind of like you're doing, it's like you kind of just go on a little mini retreat when you organize your whole house, you know, or where you organize your closet and then you start exactly. fresh, you know? Yeah. And it's deliberate. I think the key there is it's deliberate, right? right? Like you're the energy you put into thinking about how you can change your environment is processing patterns that are reminding you I'm doing this because I'm putting this here because I'm taking this yeah. away because, and those are like little nuggets that are stored in your brain which act as prompts when you, when you, if, and when you start to revert back to the old behaviors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just knowing that, you know, our environment nudges our behavior in a huge way. You know, and the next part is talking about designing the environment. And I think for me, it really boils down to decision fatigue, right? This whole, this whole notion that, um, 
we have this deteriorating quality of decisions that we make based on the number of decisions we're making. So like your first decision of the day, is probably going to be a great one. Your thousandth decision of the day, probably not going to be as good one. And this is why I always have a tendency to eat shitty, sweet, delicious junk food at the end of the day. Cause like, I just oh, have yeah. about my decision-making ability to make good decisions is so terrible by then. And so, but, but just recognizing that pattern allows me to say, well, I just got to not have shit food available at the end of the day. Cause then the temptation is not there. Um, and so I think, you know, when we deliberately and deliberate means done consciously and intentionally, when we deliberately design our environment, we start to reclaim agency and responsibility for our behaviors by redesigning the environment to align with the behaviors we want um, to facilitate. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, you know, James Clear has this piece that talks about systems are much better than goals, right? And this whole notion that goals are the way that we orient ourselves towards an objection or towards an objective rather, but systems are the way we actually make progress and get shit done. And so I think just like we said before, people often try and change the behavior without changing the environment and it can be very difficult. And so I think the system is really change the environment. Then you don't even have to think. So there's no, there's not as much decision fatigue because, you know, for example, at the end of the day, when you've got a good amount of decision fatigue and, and one thing I'll add there is we underestimate the amount of decisions we make. Um, Right. Like even like how you're going to, how you put, where you put the toothpaste back after you put on your toothbrush, that's a choice, right? You chose to put it there. Uh, What color shirt to put on, um, you know, like what, you know, all of these choices we make throughout the day that we don't even really realize sort of wear on us. And so, for example, at the end of the day, if you're like, well, I'm always trying to sit on the floor, but that couch looks just so tasty at the end of the day. Um, Well, an easy way to correct for that is like, don't have the couch available or have the couch like twice as far back from the TV so that it's like, it's more convenient to sit on the ground than it is to sit on the couch because the couch is too damn far away and I can't see the TV, right? And so I think it's really about cleverly designing prompts through the environment um, to nudge the right behaviors so that you don't have to rely on your motivation, willpower, and you can take into account that my decision fatigue might be high at the end of the day, but I've oriented my environment such that the right behavior is the easier behavior. And I think that's a really powerful like hack and not hack, but a really powerful tool. It is. That is, I, I think that that is the most power, the, what did you call it? That's so great. Decision, decision fatigue. Decision that, fatigue. Has, that is the most powerful, uh, 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 like stimulus for my health improving over the years was when we took away the car. So the transportation environment that you were talking about. So 14 years ago, we ditched the car and we, and then like, and, and then like the food, right? So when, especially now, like life is so incredibly complicated. When I first changed my diet, we were like making all these recipes with a thousand ingredients. And I was like, <laughs> it's, it's just too much. You know, there's too much preparation. It's 42 steps. And, and I just wanted to eat like my grandmother would just make a pot of a giant pot of pinto beans and some rice and have some tortillas. And it was delicious. Mm. And so the car eliminated the burden of choice, the gross. So I love the idea of like eliminating the burden of choice eliminates decision fatigue. And that has been the most freeing, the most freeing aspect of my health being improved, you know, is in the same thing when we go to, 
when we go to Tampa and we stay there, I, I take like a duffel bag full of clothes. And then I come back and I'm like, I don't need anything else because I have eliminated the burden of choice and I don't have any decision fatigue. All I need to do is get up and go and do my stuff with the foot collective and the foot nerd program. There you go. It's, it's fun. And it's almost like the making a one-time decision that eliminates thousands of future decisions. Like yeah. for example, having a limited closet of like three sweaters, three shirts, three pairs of underwear. It's like, guess what? You don't have that many choices to make because there aren't that many choices to make because you've already made one choice to limit your choices so that you don't have to choose. And so I think this, you know, I I really think, you know, no couch equals no sitting on couch, no junk food equals not going to eat junk food. So I think it's this whole notion that we can really spend a bit more thought energy on the design element of our environment. And that really pays off in the end because it's, it conserves energy. There's not as many decisions to make. We eliminate willpower and rely on our systems, which inevitably becomes a more effective and efficient way to go about this. Um, and so, but once again, we have to be aware and understand all these different elements of the environment and how they affect our behaviors in order to deliberately make changes that we know will nudge positive behaviors. And then we have to sort of like reflect on, did that environment change actually facilitate the kind of behaviors that I wanted to facilitate? Because sometimes it doesn't, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the total, like if you eliminate all sugar uh, from your house, well, maybe you'll find yourself driving to get sugar every day because driving to get sugar is less painful than having no sugar, right? And so right. it's, I, I, we, we have to kind of like, okay, I think this is the best decision or change to make. Um, did it turn out like I thought it would, right? Is the result of that experiment what my hypothesis was? And if not, okay, try it again. And okay. it's just, it's like all trial and error. And the more you yeah. explore and experiment, the more data you get, the better you understand yourself and the better you understand how to make productive changes in future. Yep. We're right back to the said principle and the scientific method. Yes. Uh, the last point, the last two points are subtraction over addition and then epigenetics. And we're not going to go too deep into epigenetics, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, but in terms of subtraction over addition, you know, this whole notion that less is more, right? Um, you know, like if someone wants to improve their hip mobility, um, you, you can either like learn a bunch of different ways to mobilize your hips or you can just subtract the couch. And then you're going to get a whole lot more hip mobility exposure every single day. And so I think this whole idea that instead of trying to add a bunch of things when it comes to our environment, really just take away the things we've added that might be disrupting our ability to do um, healthful behaviors, right? Like remove the addictive apps from the home screen on your phone. This is a, this is one of the environment changes that I do often is I, I mix around all of the apps on my phone. And I put all the most addictive apps on the very last screen, right? Like I have an iPhone, I can swipe through and there's all the different icons. I put all the addictive apps at the very, like on the fifth screen. Like I make tons of screens and I make it so far back that I have to literally, every time I swipe my finger to get to them, I'm like, shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be doing this. You know, like it's like a prompt, right? But it reduces the temptation because as soon as I open my phone, I'm not tempted by social media apps that I know I'll click on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, those are examples of subtraction, right? Subtract the amount of instant choices or, in, or, or temptations that you have. And oftentimes the right behaviors sort of manifest, right? Like mm-hmm. subtract the technology from your shoes and you increase the mobility and the load inputs for your foot, right? So before thinking about addition, always think, how can I first subtract something? Um, you know, you want to have less decisions of what, of deciding what to wear every day, subtract the amount of options and you automatically have fewer options. 
Um, so always think, try and always think subtraction before addition. Um, I found that really useful and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have anything to say about that except for that. Like you subtract the couch, you move more then it just naturally goes that after, if you move all day, you can subtract the gym membership because mm. you don't need to have that. If you subtract, if you happen to want to ever subtract the car, you really don't need the gym membership. I, I remember thinking I grew up in the gym. I always had some kind of membership, you know, and now I don't know. It just seems like it just seems so it's an elegant design. If you just get right back to it, yeah. the idea of, of just simplicity, you know, you spend less money, you save more money, you eat better food. You just, it just starts to, it starts to snowball the effect, the, the high quality of your life of out of my life just started to snowball over the years. You know, this doesn't all happen overnight, obviously. Yeah. And even I found that by subtracting things from my physical environment that I spend the most time in each day, uh, mm -hmm. I actually heavily reduce my mental clutter. Like that was yes. something I found a long time ago where I'm like, mm -hmm. if I have less shit hanging around, my brain is trying to pick up less things when I'm trying to just focus on one thing. So okay. that's an environment where, or that's an example rather where the physical and, and everything's bi-directionally interdependent, like anything, right? Everything sure. affects everything. Your social environment will affect your physical environment and mental, but you know, for me, my mental environment really is affected by my physical environment, both like the food I eat and also my surroundings. And so, you know, as you start to make all these changes, and I think the one thing that um, from the standpoint of really knowing if, if, a, if a specific change was effective at ushering in whatever behavior you're trying to promote, you have to kind of isolate changes, right? If you change everything, and a bunch of things happen, some good, some bad, you don't really know what change was responsible for that. So I think there's something to be said about being tactical about the changes you make so that you can really see, okay, well, I changed this thing or these couple things and these behavioral changes happened. So I wonder what had the effect. And, you know, if I find myself in a behavior slump uh, with this bad habit again, I know that, well, I changed this last time and it worked. So I know that that's probably something I can grab again in future if I need to. So, um, subtraction over addition. And then the last part, just talking about epigenetics. Um, epi means above, genetics is our like our genes, uh, our deep biology. And so epigenetics is the study of how our behaviors and our environment can cause changes that affect us at the genetic level. Um, and not so much always changing the genes themselves, but changing the expression of the genes we have. Sure. And so I think we really, I just wanted to mention that because inputs that modify our behaviors will eventually modify the expression of our genes. Um, and so if you create an environment that aligns with your biology, your biology will be able to express itself optimally. Mm -hmm. And so really our environment does affect our genetics. Um, yeah. it might not be like super straightforward and one-to-one -one and perfect, but just know that like the deep biology of your body changes over time, just like anything it adapts. Um, and your environment has a huge bearing on how the genes that you have, which you can't change, express themselves, which, you know, you might have one set of genes, but they can express themselves in a thousand different ways. Yeah. Um, and so making sure you're in an environment that nudges you towards behaviors that align with your biology, allow your biology to express itself in the right way. Great. Well, I mean, like, and, and, and genes are, are essentially have like on and off buttons, you know, in a layer two conversation, I could probably talk about how there was some, 
my biological father was the, su supposed to have had um, Huntington's Korea. It's like a 50-50 chance that you would pass down that gene of that of, to your offspring. But when I was in grad school, there was, um, I spoke to my, my professors who were researching and we did a little bit of digging and, um, and, and I never got tested for the gene, but um, you know, just the idea that you're, you're not, you're, you're, you might be predisposed to a disease that is supposedly genetic. And I'm not, I'm not like saying that, that this is absolute, but there is the possibility that we have more control. We're, we're not, we're not at the mercy always of like our genetic expression and our family's genetic expression. Right. Right. It's not deterministic. And there's mm -hmm. so the, the nature nurture, um, sort of debate. I, I think we always, the problem is it's convenient to say that our genetics are responsible. Mm -hmm. That's the slippery part, right? Like mm -hmm. people who, um, Diabetes, you know, if you, for example, pardon, diabetes, diabetes. Yeah, sure. Like if you have a predisposition to diabetes, um, sure. Whoever told you that, um, could be correct, but also we don't want to negate the fact that there's a huge amount of agency that you have in whether or not diabetes gets expressed in your body. And mm -hmm. I think that's where the, you know, we want to focus on things that we have the potential to change and knowing that the bulk of our genetic expression is available to us to affect in a really profound way, um, I think helps us accept more responsibility for our health because we can realize that, wow, I have a way bigger potential to determine my health than what I think, you know, certain people might might have told us in the past right i, I think mm -hmm. medicine is fundamentally disempowering right it places the blame on the body on our biology um and doesn't really empower us to actually take action and uh, i think that's the opposite of what we need to do in order to actually enhance collective health is like empower people with this understanding and confidence that they can do so much to change their health mm -hmm. and clearly if you're here listening to this you get that so thank you yeah. for being here um Okay, experiments. I'll quickly list off five of the experiments we have um, for this lesson. And and as always, we hope that people contribute ideas for experiments that they've done or want to do so that we can add to this list. Um, one of them is write down one thing you can modify within each type of environment to enhance your health. So write down one thing in your physical environment, your social environment, and your mental environment that you can do to um, sort of enhance your health or lead to more optimal health. Um, as a reflection, write down five ways your current home environment might nudge you towards habitual behaviors. And it's like, not doesn't matter if they're quote unquote good or bad, just what are ways that you notice that your home nudges you towards doing same similar behavioral routines? Uh, write down three things you wanna change in your social environment or that you could change in your social environment. Uh, have a discussion with your learning partner about the impact of our environment on health which is a very broad discussion, but take it wherever you want. It's always nice to kind of bounce ideas off each other. Uh, and then for two weeks, this is one of the bigger experiments, but for two weeks, track how an environmental change you made is affecting the behaviors you do within that environment. And I think that's um, a really good one, especially if you're really tuning in um, deeply to how how your, you know, the ease of which doing certain behaviors or the difficulty of certain behaviors um, you know, how's that changing as you started to make environmental changes, for example, in your home or in the workplace? Um, so yeah, anything else to add, Ruthie Pop? I would just say maybe do 
maybe do the same experiment about your mental, do, a, do an experiment on mental. I don't know if you mentioned that, but like, just notice, take some time to notice, like, how, what are your, what are those times when you get like super looped um, in thought processes that maybe are geared towards negativity bias or like, where, where do you, where do you press the magic buttons of like hyper stimulus, whether it's food, um, and then just notice how, how do your insides feel? How does your internal environment feel when the magic bu buttons are pressed? Mm, that's a good one. So to everyone listening, we hope you found this lesson helpful and we took yep. some, you took some notes in your log. Listening to this is proof of work showing up every day for an hour, regardless of what you do. Even if you just go for a walk and then write down the thoughts that came to mind, like that is proof of work that you're showing up in your health process. Some days you're going to do more intense things. Some days you're not going to do intense things. But at the end of the day, just showing up for a deliberate, intentional one hour uh, of taking care of yourself, whatever that means to you on that specific day, um, is how we all take responsibility for our health. And when we all take responsibility, we lead to a better world where more people are inspired to take responsibility and our collective health improves. So um, connect with your pod mates and your learning partners uh, about this lesson. We hope you have some fruitful discussions and uh, we'll catch you in the next lesson. Ciao for now. We will catch you. We will catch you. Ciao for now.